0: Uh, coming on the heels of thanksgiving. This is a, a thanksgiving psalm, and I thought this was fitting for us. Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we have been celebrating this time of thanksgiving. Father, this is a time when... We can give thanks to you. We can give thanks to you any day and we should and you call us to, but especially during this season. For the nature of giving thanks is to attribute gratitude to someone. Father, this is something, this is a category of the secular world has has no category for it. Father, we as Christians know because you have created us and because you are good and you are the giver of all good gifts and we did not create ourselves. So it's not to us that we give thanks, but it is naturally to you that we give all praise and glory and that we can come before you on this morning and sing for joy. For you are good. And your loving kindness and your mercy and grace endure forever. So we give praise to you this morning and ask that you would meet with us today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
1: of all creation. beyond our galaxy you are holy holy good morning everybody if you'd like to stand you can if you want to sit you can sit i'm glad you guys knew that we were singing because most everybody didn't show up and you guys did so i appreciate that Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great Face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory Behold the man upon the cross my sin upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there I tell it was accomplished His dying breath has brought It is finished I will not boast in anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom But I will boast in Jesus Christ I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom.
0: Good morning, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. I love your hat, by the way. It's great. <laughs> yours too well it's good to see everybody all right spread out some spread out we got plenty of room yeah spread out okay <laughs> all right well the last couple weeks we've been talking about kind of a dark subject right about about people and our own sin nature and how we got to be that way and the punishment for that sin okay well the that's the dark side Okay, so now we get to talk about the good news. All right, so what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks is Jesus and who Jesus is, why he came. Okay, so many things surrounding Christ. Um, So this morning we're going to talk about one aspect of Christ, one character of Christ called his eternality. Now let me ask you this. How many of you know somebody who was alive before they were born? Somebody who was alive long before they were born? Who? Oh, you stole the answer. Okay, anybody, anybody else? You know anybody else who was alive before they were born? Got it? God, okay, there you go. Jesus and God, right, correct, okay. All right, well, that's kind of weird, isn't it, though? I mean, we, we don't talk about that, right? We don't, we don't talk about, uh, you know, being alive before we're born. Now, we know that babies are alive inside their mommy's tummy before they're born, right? And that life is precious and it's sacred, but before that, even, okay, that person doesn't exist, right? They, they don't exist. But Jesus has existed before he was ever born, right? That kind of blows our mind, right? That's kind of hard to think about. And it's important that Jesus, was, that Jesus was alive before he was ever born because remember the last couple of weeks we talked about the great, how great our sin is and how great of a Savior we need and we need a savior who's not just another created being, not just a, another created person, but we need God himself. You know Jesus said that that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And so God has done the greatest love. He's demonstrated the greatest love for us, not because he made another person and said I'm going to send this person to die on the cross for you. But he said, I'm going to come myself in the third person of the Trinity. I'm going to lay down my own life for you. I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to do the greatest act of love, which is lay down my own life. Now, we know something about God that we talked about way, 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 way back when you were like this tall, right? No, like six weeks ago. That God, does God have a beginning? Does God have a beginning? When was God born? Okay, Jesus was born on Christmas, incarnation, right, okay? But right, God existed before that. Jesus existed before that, okay? What? Does God have a beginning? No, God is eternal. He's always been, Okay? Well, Jesus in several places in Scripture, Jesus or the Scripture points to the fact that Jesus, who was the Messiah, who would come to save us, would be God, that he would be eternal. And that's a unique character of God that only God has. Only God is eternal. So let me give you one place in the book of John where Jesus where Jesus says, I've existed always. There's a part where he's arguing with the Pharisees. He's arguing with the religious leaders. And he says this. In John 8, he says, your father Abraham. Remember, Abraham, he was way back in the Old Testament. Okay? he's way back in the Old Testament. The one who, who God gave the Ten Commandments to Abraham. Remember that? Okay? Kind of the beginning of Israel as a, as a nation, starting, was right there at Abraham. So Abraham was kind of a big deal. He's like the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, right? Okay, so he's a big deal. And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Pharisees are like, you're not even 50 years old. How is it that Abraham saw you? He says, you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And what he means by that is, this You can bank on this. This is genuinely true. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And do you know what the Pharisees did? They picked up stones to stone him, to kill him. Now, why do you think that they did that? Why? Okay, yes, because they have sin in their heart. That's right. But something about what Jesus said pushed him over the edge. What was it? Okay, that's right. This is, this is a tough one. Okay, you've got to know a little bit about the Old Testament. So let me kind of put the dot connect the dots for you. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, that's weird, right? That, that's kind of strange in the way that we talk. But what Jesus is referring to is when Abraham was at the burning bush. Remember the Old Testament? Je- Abraham's at the burning bush. He sees the burning bush, and God speaks to him. From the bushes, take off your, your shoes, you're on holy ground. And he tells Abraham, you're going to go to my people who are in slavery in Egypt, and here's what you're going to do. And he gives him all these instructions, and Abraham's timid, and he says, I, 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 don't, I don't know about this. Who, okay, I you got to have some way to, to, to convince these people that you are who you say you are. Who do I tell them sent me? Do you know what God says? I am who I am. I am who I am. And, and God was speaking of his eternality that he has always been. And that phrase, I am, is used in multiple other places in the Old Testament to point to the fact that only God is God. So when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, I am God. That's why the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. Because in the Old Testament, God's name it was holy. And you couldn't use God's name in vain. You couldn't drag God's name through the mud or use it in a way that, 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 that would make it look less than as glorious as it was. And so for somebody to say, I'm God, that was worthy of death. That's why the Pharisees took it as so great an offense that Jesus would say, I am. They knew what he was saying, that he was saying, I am God. That's why they picked up stones. So Jesus, by his own claim, and I'll send out some uh, some devotionals for this week for you guys and your families to look at, just to see how rich this is that Jesus has existed before time began, that He is God. Even some of the things that are connected to Christmas time too, right? Because we're right into the Christmas season, so it's fitting that we look at how glorious Jesus, who was born on Christmas Day, right, is. And one of those is the fact that He has existed before. He was even born. All right, well, thank you guys. Let me pray for us. Okay, and you guys are dismissed to your seats. Father God, Lord, what wonder it is to look to Christmas through the eyes of a child. See the wonder and the marvel of Jesus who existed before he was born. Before he became a man. Before he was clothed in humanity, he existed. He was there at the foundation of the world. His hand was in the process of making all things. And yet he took on flesh, clothed himself in humanity, was born in a manger, a little baby dependent on his mother, We might grow in the grace and knowledge of you. Be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Live a life of obedience to you that we could not live. And reveal you to us. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, we (laughs) might come to know you and be made right. So Father, give you praise and give you glory this morning. For all of these things are in your plan and what a wonder it is to be able to know them to see them Father with the eyes of faith and I pray that these children this morning and all those who are here Father might have those same eyes of faith to see Jesus for who he is and treasure him it's in Christ's precious name that I pray Amen
1: Worthy is the slave. Holy, holy is He. Sing a new song to Him who sits on praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will to the King of Kings, you are my everything, and I will adore you. Please stay in with us if you like. I'm forgiven. Taken and I'm accepted, you were condemned, and I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again, and I'm forgiven because you taken and I'm accepted in all I
0: 18. As you're turning there, I want to say a special thank you to Stephen and Channa for filling in this morning with with music. It's it was so blessed to just have people who are gifted musically, aren't we? I mean, it's just a just a wonderful blessing. I don't know it, it really is. Um, and, and as Al and I were talking this past week, and certain members in the in the in the band, and, you know, either were. Had come down with COVID. We're quarantined because of exposure to COVID, or we're you know self-quarantining just out of you know out of health reasons. Uh, you know, Alan was trying to put together groups that could sing, and he just told me. He said, "Austin, you know, just uh, just be prepared. If we can't find someone to sing, you may just have to do no music." And I said, "Alan, I am I am happy to lead in song. I cannot carry a tune in a bucket, but I am happy to lead in song. So just know, you know, that if." No one can sing. I am happy to lead you. The Lord says, make a joyful noise. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to exercise that gift of mine. Um, so, but, but thank you, Stephen and Shanna, for, for leading us. So that the church did not have to listen to me sing this morning. So, uh, all right. I hope you're there in John 18. I'm going to read our text. will be John 18, 1 through 13, looking at the sovereign arrest of Christ. Uh, as we leave the the probably close to two months, I guess now we've been in the upper room, just in this close intimate gathering with Jesus and his disciples. Um, now we are out of the upper room and we're moving into the narrative where where things transpire quickly, uh, moving towards the the crucifixion. Um, and it, it, it's fitting, isn't it, that that as we get closer to Christmas time, we're we'll be looking at the crucifixion because as we consider the incarnation. At Christmas time, the incarnation only makes sense and is celebratory if we have the crucifixion and the resurrection, is it not? If we did not have those, then it would be just another baby who was born and perhaps just a a warm, fuzzy, uh, Hallmark story. But it's so much more than that because of uh, because of the resurrection. And so, it, like I said, it's fitting that we're moving into this part in John as we come into the Christmas season. Um, so, all right, well, John eighteen. One through thirteen. I'll, I'll read our text. When Jesus had spoken these words, remember, he'd closing out um, the time in the upper room. When he'd spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all these things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he had said this to them, when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And therefore he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the, the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To, to, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you've given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Ananias first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So I look at this this morning. It's it's interesting. John, as John tells us of the arrest of Jesus, he gives us an a, an abridged account here. If you if you look at all the if you look at the synoptic gospels, they they're, they draw this out more. No, J, J, John omits so much of what happens within the garden. He omits the agony of Jesus' prayer. He omits the fact that the disciples were asked. Uh, multiple times to watch and keep watch and pray, and they fell asleep. He omits the fact that Judas approached Jesus and gave him a kiss in order to signify to the uh, to to the soldiers who was to be arrested. So John gives this this abridged account, and and I think it's fitting. And I encourage you to do this maybe this afternoon when you have time to read all of the accounts in all four of the Gospels regarding the arrest of Jesus to give us a full picture. Because John isn't telling a different story. He's telling the same story from a different vantage point. And so reading all of them together gives us a full picture of what happens. Uh, But for time's sake, um, I'm going to just camp out right here because there's so much here. We're not going to go anywhere else, really. I just want to camp out right here. Because John, what John does is he sees the weight of what lies ahead for the Son of Man. Or excuse me, the, the weight of what lies ahead for the Son of Man that, that's emphasized in the other Gospels. John omits this for the sake of the glory of the King. Where in the other Gospels, in Jesus' rest, Christ is seen humble. And so much in his humanity, John lifts up the sovereignty of Christ in this. And so that's what I want us us to look at today. As we look through, as we go through this, I want you to see the majesty of Jesus as he voluntarily gives himself to be arrested and then executed. The fact that he was bound and he gave himself to be bound so that we could be set free. That's what I want to lift out of this text this morning. And that this should produce in us a robust hope and courage in God when we face trials. And to turn us from rash, man-centered actions on, on, on earthly kingdoms as Peter displays and was rebuked for. Turn us from that to bold steps of faith. So that's what I look at this morning. So I I want to look kind of at the context of, of uh, of, of this passage, how John phrases it, how he sets it up. Because as you read through this, you really get the sense that Jesus has control over this whole thing. But I want to look at just how the deck is, in a sense, sovereignly stacked against him. And how John shows that even though this should have turned out very, very differently, we should be awestruck at what Christ does here. So I want to show kind of how that deck is stacked against Him, just to paint that picture. But then also show Jesus as He demonstrates His unique roles of prophet, king, and priest in this one section right here, how, how, how He is exalted in those. Because it's, I think it's John's goal for us, and as has been the case throughout his gospel that we see Jesus and we see Christ for who he is. And in everything that John writes, that's what he's that's what he's emphasizing. That's what he's drawing out. It's not like he's trying to give a little bit of narrative in order to connect to something Jesus says later that's really the important part. But he's got to fill this in, you know, in order to do a character development. No, it's everything that John writes he was an eyewitness to. And he's recalling it through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the fact that this exalts Jesus remember John is present at this arrest and he's remembering this years later and he's, he's putting this down on pen uh, on paper saying this is what i remember about this event and it's all about Christ and who he was so let me tell you about his arrest so that's what i want to do this morning so let's look at you know initially how this deck is stacked against Jesus, and so when Jesus speaks these words, he leaves uh he he leaves that upper room, and John says he goes out through he goes out through the Kidron valley now now, in verse four, John says, Jesus, knowing that all these things were coming upon him, what is all these things that were coming upon him? It is his arrest, but he's set John has set this stage up, and one of those things that he's mentioned. Is that Jesus and his disciples passed through the Kidron Valley? Now he doesn't just mention this to say, okay, well, he has to get here. There's a I think there's a point, there's a reason he mentions this valley, because this valley is mentioned multiple times in the Old Testament. This valley that sat to the southeast of the city of Jerusalem, and on the other side of it was the the Mount of Olivet, the uh the or the garden, the um where Jesus went. It was a barren valley. It uh, Some translations read the Brook at Kidron, which was a, uh, it was a dry riverbed. Um, commentators I read said, or historians have said that that dry riverbed, even during the most rainy seasons, would have just a small stream of water running through it. So it was a desolate place. It was, in fact, in the Old Testament, multiple times in Kings and in Chronicles, uh, the king several times the kings who... Uh, who abided by God's law and were in line with God's purposes when they would institute reformations or when they, when they would, when the reforms would come under those Kings. And there were of course, idols that were in the temples and, and pagan deities had been fashioned from wood and put up Um, King Asa, even his mother had put up a pagan deity and he takes this pagan, he takes this wood statue and sends it out along with the other idols into the valley of the Kidron, into this this desolate valley to be burned. Multiple times this happens in the Old Testament, and in Jeremiah, Jeremiah mentions this uh, that that in in the new, when when all things will be be made new, and he's talking about um, when 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 the Christ will rule on his throne, and and he's giving all of these prophecies, and he's talking about the span of the rule of. Uh, of the king. He said this will even span the valley of the kindred. And he talks about a valley of dry bones which could be this valley. It could be in a neighboring valley. But the point is that there is this desolate wasteland that even that will be made new. I think most pointedly we see this in the Old Testament when King David David is uh, uh, when he's betrayed by one of his closest friends, and his son institutes a coup and overthrows his throne and becomes king. There's a point in 2 Samuel 15 where we find David in tears, along with those who are with him, his family. They're leaving the city in mourning, and they pass through the Kidron Valley. I think it's fitting that John mentions this valley because here we have. The descendant of David, the one to whom an eternal kingdom is promised, who passes through this same valley, not in tears, but triumphantly. So Jesus passes through the Kidron Valley. And he passes through it and he intentionally goes to the garden. He goes to the garden. Remember, his time had come. And so he goes to this place of solitude and rest, this place that he had been with his disciples many, many times before, probably in great precious times of teaching with them. And he goes there that is a place away from the crowds and at night. Remember, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they wanted to capture and kill Jesus. They had been plotting this for a long time. But do you remember why they had not done so yet? They feared the people. They feared capturing him in the daytime when the crowds were around. There was peer pressure from the people. And so Jesus, knowing these things, and knowing that his time has come, he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where he was known to go, and he goes there away from the crowds, he goes there away at night. A place where it would be easiest for the authorities to capture him. But not only that, Judas had left to betray Christ. Remember in the upper room, before Jesus starts this discourse with the 11, he tells Judas, do what you do, go and do quickly. And Judas leaves. That's when he goes, finds the Pharisees, and he betrays Jesus. And Judas was familiar with this garden. It's what John highlights in verse 2. Judas, who was betraying him, he knew the place. He knew that Jesus went there often and met with his disciples. He knew that it was very, very likely Jesus would go there after meeting in the upper room. And that was his best opportunity to betray him, to hand him over to the Romans and to the Pharisees. So all of this is, Christ is, Christ is knowing these things are coming Knowing these things are all coming to a head, but not only that. Notice who came. He didn't just bring a few of the Pharisees. He just didn't. He didn't bring the captain of the guard. Look who comes. Verse three. He says that Judas, having received a Roman cohort, that's a couple hundred soldiers who were likely stationed in a nearby Roman tower, who were put there. In the likely event of an, of an unrest, particularly at this time in Passover when there were a lot of people coming in and out of, Jer- of Jerusalem, and while the Romans were tolerant of it, they knew that unrest was very likely during a celebration like this. And so these Roman soldiers were likely stationed in this tower just in case things got out of hand. It was very convenient then that the Roman authorities could send a portion of that battalion to go and arrest Jesus. So a couple hundred of these armed mercenaries these armed soldiers came. But not only that, the officers of the chief priests, these are the police officers assembly, uh, essentially of the temple. So not only do you have basically the army, you have the police who are coming. You have Gentile armed Roman soldiers and then you have police from the Jewish temple. And then behind that if you think of these as stacking up in a in a line or or you know or or in uh, in waves you have the religious leaders the pharisees the religious leaders the ones who want to ensure that this is Jesus whom they arrest and Jesus whom they eventually kill the ones who've been plotting against him not only that but then all of their attendants and they came with torches and with weapons I don't know if you've seen you know movies um, but if I think of the movies when someone's going to go be captured and they're standing outside the house or having small children, you know, Disney movies are in my mind, I'm thinking beauty and the beast, you know, and they're outside the, you know, the, the castle with torches and weapons. And I mean, it's an intimidating sight, you know, I, you know, I, I think I personally, if there were 300 people outside my house in broad daylight, I would not be quite as apt to wet myself as if it were, you know, one o'clock in the morning and there's torches and there's weapons. It is an extremely intimidating sight to have this vast force come upon the garden where 11 men are sweep, are sleeping and one God-man is praying. So you think about this. Imagine the trepidation of the disciples at this point. All the things that Jesus has been saying and they're not really fully grasping all of this and then all of a sudden... They wake up, and they're like, oh, my word, what is going on? think about what's going through their minds. What, what phrases has Jesus been saying that is going back through them? Now, when Jesus was saying that he must be killed, all of these things, what is going through their heads? How are they handling this? Probably not well at this point. know they're probably not handling this very well at all. There's not much hope here. This whole scene is set up as if, okay, we're all going to die like right here. But notice that Jesus, knowing that all these things were coming upon him, he goes forth. So what I want you to see is that this whole scene, this whole picture that John paints is one of utter hopelessness if it's merely up to human strength and human force and human ingenuity and creativity to try and figure out a way out of it. Because that's actually, that's what comes against Jesus. A.W. Pink says this, he said that attacks upon the truth are made by artificial lights and carnal weapons. That's what's brought against the Son of God. That these human reason and brute, brute force are no match for the divine Son of God. And we see this in three ways where Christ uh, exercises his unique uh, office of prophet, king, and priest. So let's look at each of these as Jesus interacts with this vast mob that's here. Those who have come to arrest him. Let's look at them in turn. So Jesus first as prophet. Verse 4 that says that he went forth. Where did he go forth from? Out of the garden. The solitude and the sanctuary of that grove of trees, this mob's outside of it, and he goes forth out of the garden. Notice that Jesus took the initiatives to go out before his captives, his captors. That those who would seek to arrest him while they are hidden in darkness, Jesus does not fear, and he goes out to make himself known. He's he's in control of this. And he steps into, or say back up, doesn't step into. He he exercises and demonstrates that role as prophet to make himself known. Notice this this QA that kind of goes on. Jesus steps out and he says, Whom do you seek? And the authorities that are there, they they use the given name of Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, most likely this is the Roman authorities because these are the ones who have the authority to actually kill him. No. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're, they're behind the Roman authorities. So it's the Roman authorities who are basically making the arrest. So it's likely that those Roman authorities, maybe have heard something of Jesus, but the orders that they've been given are to arrest this one Jesus of Nazareth. But I think John points to that and he, he brings that phrase because that's his given name. That's his human name. It emphasizes only his humanity. But what does Jesus say? He says, I am he. In contrast to the merely human name that only has behind it human frailty and human weakness. Jesus uses the name of Yahweh from Exodus 3 that I spoke to the children about. I am who I am. He says, I am he. Jesus would make himself known as God to this vast group of both Jew and Gentile so that it would be sure everybody knows who he is. This is what a prophet did, right? In the Old Testament, the prophet's charge was to make known the proclamations of God, make known who God was. But the unique thing about the prophet in the Old Testament was that they spoke for God. Jesus says, I am God. I reveal the Father to you. I make him known. And he says this with two words, I am. I am. But notice here, and and it would be an interesting study to look back through the I am statements in the Gospels of Jesus, and there are many of them. But it's interesting that here there's no comfort as there is in Mark 6 when Jesus is walking on water and the disciples are fearful. And Jesus says, fear not, it's I. Fear not, I am. There's no comfort of do not be afraid in this I am statement to this group who is adamantly against Christ and set on his arrest and crucifixion. There's no effectual calling as there is in John 4. Remember in John 4, there's the woman at the well. And she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. And they talk and they converse. She says, I'm the light of the world. He speaks to her. And she says, you know, one day the the Messiah is going to come. And Jesus says, I am. And she then turns and goes out and bears witness to him. There's no effectual calling in this revelation of who Jesus is. It's an emphasis to us that there is a need for God to open the eyes of the blind. That no amount of just information will turn a hard heart. That the light of divine grace must be given in order for sinners to repent. And this is something we all ought to bear in mind: is that that is what is needed—the gospel, the revelation of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the power of Christ and prophet to make God known in a salvific sense, in order for saving work to be done. So Christ executes his office, and he uh, He executes his office as prophet here to make himself known. But notice the effect of Jesus' words, because they are quite miraculous. The effect of his words demonstrate him as king. Look at verse 6. John says, So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Notice that. Just picture that in your mind. I mean, here is several hundred armed to the teeth, burly men. No, they don't turn away from battle. They stand up against armies and don't retreat. And they fall to the ground, not in worship, but in shock and shame at the word of Christ. Christ. That's power, that's authority. Right there, I was talking with Stephen before the uh, b- before the uh, the service began. He was telling me how Jackson has loved watching the Narnia movies, and I can't help but think of Aslan's growl in those movies and in those books. Every time he growls, something big happens. Now, when he when he he growls at the the queen, no, the, the, the white witch, who says, how do I know you're going to keep your word to go and die for Edmund? And he growls, and she shudders, and she pulls back. When he growls in Prince Caspian at the end of the battle, when it looks like the Narnians are going to lose, and he growls, and it brings forth just a troop of reinforcements, and the opposition knows we're done for. When he growls in Voyage of the Dawn Treader and, uh, and Eustace, who's clothed in the scales of a dragon, those scales fall off and he's now clothed in a new humanity. That happens because Aslan growls. and C.S. Lewis, and I'm so thankful that, that the producers who made those movies maintained the emphasis that C.S. Lewis put into his books in the fact that that growl was unique and it was Powerful. And we see this with Jesus' words of I am. There's power and authority behind the voice of any king, but especially here, the king of kings. And note their response the second time, because Jesus, he demonstrates himself as king. I mean, he has the power and authority in those two little words to send this entire army back on their heels And he asked them a second time, who do you seek? Whom do you seek? It's almost like the answer wasn't sufficient the first time. It's like he's given them one more chance. Give them one more chance to say my name right. You know. And their response is still Jesus the Nazarene. Not Jesus the Christ, not the Lord of Lords. Not El Shaddai, not, not any of these others, Jesus the Nazarene. I think this, this, this instance where you just see this miraculous event where these men fall back on their heels, it's another one of the signs that John pointed to. And John and John 2 said that after the miracle of Cana, John said, and so began the many signs that Jesus would do. I think this is just one more of those signs that John remembers that points to Jesus as the divine Son of God. But this has application for us. It has application for the lost, those who are without Christ currently, and for the saints. To see that Jesus is King and He's worthy of our worship. This is a stark warning for the day of judgment. I mean, If the effect of Christ's words here, just before his death, in the face of those who are in opposition to him, are merely to cause them to fall back, suddenly fall back, when when every human thought would say they're going to crush him, and he speaks those words, and they fall back. If that's the effect of Christ's words on those who are in opposition to him, imagine what they'll be when he returns. Can't help but think of John's vision in Revelation where he gives this awesome and horrible picture of Jesus coming and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. That sword isn't to stroke you on the back and say, I just wish you would turn. That sword's coming in judgment. So it should be a stark reminder for us that today is the day of salvation. There's a reason Christ hasn't come yet in 2020. See, he still has people who he's yet to call to himself. Today is the day of salvation. This should give courage to those who find themselves within the sheepfold of Christ. To find them aligned with him, knowing his grace and knowing his mercy. should give us courage because of who stands with us. Who has the power to turn the hearts of men toward him? Don't you think that the disciples, in that moment, all of a sudden things changed for them. They no longer were shaking in their knees, but they stood a little taller. Oh, this is a different turn of events. There's more courage that's there. I think that's why you see Peter drawing his sword at the end of, uh, of this little narrative. I think it's not like, I don't think that he's scared and in self-defense and he doesn't know what to do. I think that he sees an opportunity to go on the offensive. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think that's just a sign that the, 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 the 11 that were there were emboldened because they, they remembered and they saw more clearly who was with them. Now, Peter executed that wrongly, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I think it should give us courage to know and be reminded who stands with us when we face trials, when we face struggles, when we go toe-to-toe and see there's something against us that in our own strength we cannot battle, whether that is sickness, whether that is illness, whether that is job loss, whether that is direct opposition from those who would see Christ and his kingdom completely undone. That when we walk in faith and we walk in a line with the will of God, the revealed will of God, we should walk in boldness and in courage because of who stands with us. We don't stand with a pauper, we stand with a king. And so Christ makes himself known to these hundred men who are standing here against him. He makes himself known, and he does so in a way that establishes his authority as king. And he could have escaped as before. Remember this multiple times when it said that they sought to seize him, but he escaped. He could have said that maybe a little more loudly. Or maybe with a little more. I don't know. I don't know how he would change that. You know, how how does the divine Son of God speak in such a way that it only causes them to go back so far and not knock them over like a like a tsunami? I don't know. I don't know how that works. But he could have just crushed them. But he didn't because his time had come. And it's pointed that his last words in the presence of his disciples, they're they're words of intercession. They're words of intercession to guard those whom the Father has given him. Look what he says. And he says, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Let these go their way. Notice the power of Jesus' intercession here. He's caring for the for the disciples. But notice the power of his intercession here. Because this group had every right to arrest them all. the, The Romans thought Jesus was trying to take over power from Caesar. He's building up this band. He's gaining, you know, gaining power. He's talking about the kingdom that's his. They don't understand it. They don't really know what's going on. But one thing they don't want is they don't want some guy to come along and raise up a band who's going to try and overthrow all that they have. And so what do you do? I mean, you squish the leader and you get rid of all the followers that are there with him. That's, that's how you deal with a rebellion. So they have every right and every reason to not only take Jesus into custody, but to take all of his followers as well. Let's get them all together. Every single one of them, get rid of them. And Jesus works. Again, Jesus holds no human power here, He's got no leverage. And yet, the words of His intercession are effective because none of the, none of the 11 that are there are captured. None of them. He had every right to arrest all of them, but they didn't. Jesus has power in His intercession. Notice here, too, that Jesus' words are the equivalent of Scripture. This is kind of a footnote, but I think it's worth our, our noting, just the power of his words. In verse 9, he says, he spoke these things. He said to the, to the authorities that were there, if you seek me, let them go. He said this to fulfill the word which he had spoken. Of those whom you've given me, I've lost not one. This was what he had prayed in the upper room to the Father. Now notice that phrase, to fulfill the words, that is used so many times of what is said in the Old Testament by the prophets for what God was going to do. Old Testament prophets would say something, and then later on you'd have a prophet or you'd have a priest, you'd have someone who would connect the dot. This happened to fulfill that one, to demonstrate that God is God. And so the words of Scripture were sacred and holy because they pointed forward to what God would do, but they also connected back. And here, to fulfill the words, that phrase is used of what Jesus spoke. So you can see early on, the apostles saw, and the early church saw, that the words of Jesus were the equivalent of Scripture. This is, this is big for us, especially in our day and age, when people look at it and go, well, this is just the words of men. No, that's not the case. It wasn't the case in the Old Testament, and the early church did not believe this. They didn't try and just collaborate this and let's make this story up, you know. It's, no, no, no. We saw that Jesus was who he says he was and that his words were the equivalent of what was written in the Old Testament in their weight and their value and their glory. We see his sovereignty ensures his plans will come to pass even in the face of unspeakable sure, He ensures that He will protect those whom the Father has given to them. Now this has a broader spiritual significance for all of us and then it has a narrower significance for the disciples. So let's look at the broad one real quick. It's significant that only Jesus would be arrested. Why? Because Jesus is the high priest. And in, in, in the Old Testament, Leviticus uh, 16, the Day of Atonement, that was the day when all the, the sins of Israel would be uh, atoned for, it's significant that only the high, uh, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies and make the atoning sacrifice. Not, not, nobody else, only the high priest could make that atoning sacrifice. And so it's fitting in order to fulfill that picture, that, that picture of what Jesus would do, that our great high priest would be arrested and would be the only sacrifice. So there would be no question. About who gets the glory. Only Jesus would go to, and cro- go to the cross. And he ensured that. There's the broader significance to it. The narrower one. Is that of the disciples significance. Or the significance to the disciples. That it's not their time to suffer his name for his name. Jesus had told them, you will suffer for my name. Just not yet. How precious that is, that Jesus will guard those whom are his body and soul as long as he has worked for them to do. You have work, Peter. You have work, John. You have work, James. you All of you have work for, to do. Your time is not yet to suffer. He sovereignly in their seeds and guards their body and soul. Now, they would eventually suffer, but their time had not yet come. So it should give us great courage that as long as we have work that God has ordained for us to do as his followers, that he will protect us. Now, does this mean that we just go jump off a cliff and say, I'm going to fly? Do we pull it a groundhog day and see how many times we can test God in this? No. Does it mean that we don't go get, you know, medicine when we get sick? No. No, that there is for us a call for both wisdom and boldness in our daily walks. That we walk with wisdom. We walk with, but also in boldness. Whether that's in the midst of cultural opposition That our first unction isn't, well, I've got to just make sure that I'm safe and so I'm not going to go here where there's an opportunity for God to be glorified and the gospel to go forth. Because it's dangerous. And I don't want to go where danger is. Whereas there in us a boldness that says it's dangerous, it's risky, but I can't help but go. I cannot help but go. Go. Christ, protect me, guard me. Keep me faithful in the work that you have me to do until you are ready to call me home. Do the same with my family, do the same with my church. We have that kind of boldness as we walk in wisdom. But also in the in the in the face of physical peril. Well, whether that's a storm that's coming. Now, we're not going to just run out and go surf in the midst of a hurricane. But a Christian might say, I'm going to stay so that I might help and take the gospel to those who remain. Yes, it's risky. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, for if there is no hope beyond death, it's foolishness. But I'm convinced here that Christ compels me. There's many other examples of that. I think there's a riskiness in any health situation where we can put our own physical comfort and physical well being above the glory of God. Again, that's, don't hear me wrong on that. We walk in wisdom, we walk in wisdom. But we do so in boldness and the desire to exalt Christ and exalt the gospel. That means looking at Scripture, reading His Word, letting it wash over us. And so, Lord, give me courage to step out in faith wherever that is. Well, that means taking meals to people who you know uh, 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 who who have cancer. The stories told. When the plague ravaged countries and Christians took meals and cared for those who were dying, even at the risk of their own bodies being succumbed to that same disease. And they could not help but do so because of the compassion that Christ had had on them and that overflowed in them for compassion to others. The gospel would go forth in word and deed. Christ's office as high priest. He guards our, the, the body and soul of the saints for the work that he has for them. Again, I can't help but go to the disciples that he guarded them here. They did suffer for his name, but not until Christ said, now is your time. So Jesus makes himself known. He establishes his authority and then he intercedes for the saints. As prophet, priest, and king, he voluntarily bound, gave himself over to be bound, to be arrested, that we might be set free. And this is what we see in verse 10 and 11. We see that we're set free, we're turned loose. From sinful postures and sinful dispositions to dispositions that seek and glorify God. Faith instead of foolishness, as we see with Peter, where Peter is rebuked by Jesus for his actions. It's Peter's rash boldness betrayed in him a pursuit of earthly temporary kingdoms. As if here, Peter is like, well, now's the time we can take over. Now's the time for us to go on the advance. And Christ rebukes him. Christ rebukes says, put the sword in the sheath, Peter. It's as if he's saying that the disciple is to take up the sword of truth in battle. The word says elsewhere, he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. I take that to mean that he who trusts in the sword, the strong arm of human ability to accomplish what he wants, needs, or desires when all things are against him. That's the one who lives by the sword. That we're called as Christians. When the deck is stacked against us to take up the sword of truth in battle. Heard a lot in the news about people storing up guns and ammo right now. And I'm not saying that's right or that's wrong, but I have to think as I'm reading this, how many of us are storing up the word in our hearts? How much of a, how many of us are storing up the word in our hearts? When Jesus told the disciples, You will do greater things than these, they saw wondrous things that Jesus did. They marvel at it and Jesus says, you're going to do greater things than these. It was the word of Christ that dwelled richly in the disciples that overflowed in bold faith that put them in situations in which that faith would be tested in which they would follow in obedience in which God would change the world through their testimony to their suffering to their eventual death but to the glory of God. They stored up the word in their heart. Find as you read in Acts, talks about and he was mighty in scripture and he was mighty in scripture. Doesn't mean he was a fantastic apologist. Doesn't mean that he knew everything, had memorized every scripture. But they treasured the word and it went out from them. And Jesus says that the, he says, put the sword in the sheath, Peter, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? That the cup of tribulation for the nations, that's what he's talking about, that he would drink it. That there's no human punishment behind this arrest. Jesus doesn't look at that and be angry or frustrated with these human entities, he sees through all of that to the divine hand of the Father. And he tells Peter, you're looking at this all wrong. God's hand is in this. Yes, they are wrong. Yes, they are deserving of punishment, but not here and not now. You leave that to someone who's higher up than you are. For me, the Father has given me this cup. Shall I not drink it? There's a divine purpose there. And Christ is sovereign kings. He sees no alternative than obedience to the Father. It's, it's not like Jesus is kind of wrestling with this here at this point. He says, The Father's given me this cup. Shall I not drink it? What else is there for me to do, Peter, than to save the world? Christ gave himself in this sovereign rest to be bound that we might be set free. We might be set free from sin, slavery to corruption, lust of the world. In faith to the same type of obedience to look at the will of God and say, shall I not follow in these same footsteps? So they not walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This is the calling that God has given to us. This is the cost of, of our being made new. And we have to say with Christ, shall we not walk in it? So Christ executes his office as prophet and priest and king for his own glory. I think John emphasizes this so that we'll see just how glorious and just how marvelous Jesus is even in the midst of this arrest. And we pray for us as we close. And then you guys are dismissed. Father God, Lord, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Just thank you for an opportunity, even in the short little narrative, as we slow down through it and we take a look, that we can see Jesus in all his magnificent glory. As he makes you known. As he speaks with with a divine authority and as he intercedes for those who are his may it give us courage and boldness Father to go where others might not go to have a holy discomfort that we would live for your glory and not for ours that I pray for all these things and that you would be magnified in our lives. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. I give you benediction from Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.